When missionaries go to a foreign field, in order to be effective, they have to learn to contextualize the gospel. The message itself, of course, doesn't change, but it may be necessary to rethink how we present this message in order for it to be rightly understood in a different culture. More and more, I'm convinced that is becoming true here. I really think the days of one size fits all, one, two, three, here's how to go to heaven, are over. We have a rapidly changing American culture. And in order to be effective, we need to think about how we present this life-changing message of Jesus. Does raise the question, how exactly do we do that? I mean, could you give me an example? Well, so glad you asked, because there's an excellent example in our text today from Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with us to Acts 17. We have a lot of ground to cover, so tighten up your seatbelt, and here we go. Verse 1, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So Paul and Silas leave Philippi. They travel through Macedonia on what was called the Roman road, the Via Ignatia. So it's the main road going uh, through Macedonia. They go through two relatively significant cities, But for whatever reason, they don't stop. They just go through, and they end up in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the wealthiest, most significant, and the capital city of Macedonia. It was about 200,000 people, which in that day was a very large city. had a very diverse population, including a fairly significant population of Jews. So the text even tells us, as was Paul's pattern, he went to the synagogue. This is where you're going to find 
the seekers, people who are coming searching for God, who have a high regard for the Old Testament. It's a very strategic place to go. He presents, again, the message from the Old Testament and identifies Jesus as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And we're told that many believed, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, men and women. But it has also been the pattern. The religious Jews were jealous. They were jealous of this attention on Jesus, so they're determined to stir up trouble. I do think it's interesting to notice from the text that these religious Jews would have considered themselves to be the closest to God, the most authentically religious people out there. Yet they had no personal conviction about identifying wicked men to stir up the city. It's this whole idea that the ends justify the means. That it's okay to do evil to bring about something good. Something very similar to what we're seeing more and more of in our country today. And of course, at the end of the day, it's just utter hypocrisy. But that's what they do. They stir up trouble. They go looking for Paul and Silas. They can't find them. Jason apparently was one of the converts. It appears that the church was meeting in Jason's home. So they grab Jason and some others, and they haul him before the authorities. In Philippi, I mentioned there were four magistrates, which was typical in that part of the world. In Macedonia, they had five what were called polytarchs. These were the magistrates that ran the cities. So Jason and others are brought before, and the claim is that they have upset the world. The Greek here has the idea of a revolution. As a matter of fact, this same Greek word is used a few chapters later and actually translated a revolt. They're leading a revolt. They're actually identifying a different king than Caesar. Now, you have to appreciate how dangerous those words were. I mentioned last week, at the top of the list of things Rome didn't like was chaos in the cities. So any kind of chaos immediately would get the attention of these authorities. But when you're saying that someone is promoting some other king other than Caesar... It would be like being in Germany under Nazi rule and saying someone is promoting themselves to replace Hitler. It's going to end badly. So this was legitimately fearful uh, on behalf of these people. Thankfully, these authorities, I think, sorted it out, saw it for what it is, and basically got a pledge from Jason and the others that they will stop creating such uh, chaos in the city. Paul and Silas realized if they continue to preach there, their friends are in legitimate danger, and it's probably time to move on. But there's two quick things worth noting. 
One is whatever happened here was significant. When you read through the New Testament, you come to the New Testament letters of First and Second Thessalonians. Those are letters written to this church meeting in Jason's home. So the church continued to grow and thrive. It's also worth noting that when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, in chapter 1, he referred to them as the model church. It's the only church in the New Testament that is referred to as the model church. So as we talked about last week, they can chase Paul and Silas out of town, but you can't stop this thing, and the church continued to grow and thrive. Verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, also they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So Paul and Silas leave Thessalonica. They go about another 50 miles down the road. But Berea was not on the Roman road. It was about 10 miles off the main road. As a matter of fact, it was a relatively insignificant uh, city politically and historically. One ancient historian just described it as a city off the beaten path. It was kind of nestled at the foot of the mountains, a relatively large city, but historically fairly insignificant. But Luke identifies these people were unique. As is Paul's pattern, he went to the synagogue, but these were a noble-minded people. They were genuinely seeking the truth. They received eagerly what Paul had to say, and then they rolled up their sleeves and examined the scriptures to see whether it was true or not. That word examine is a judicial term. For example, earlier in Acts, when Peter and John met before the Sanhedrin, it says they examined them. It's the same word. So after serious examination, the text says, therefore, meaning they concluded this is the truth, many of them believed. As a matter of fact, it created such a stir, it got the attention of the religious Jews in Thessalonica. Now they're 50 miles away. By ancient standards, that's quite a ways. But they come all the way to Berea, they stir up trouble. It's not enough to just stir up trouble in their own town, but they're determined that nobody else hears this message either and create the same kind of conflict. 
Whatever it was, it must have been intense because immediately, urgently, Paul is removed from the city. He's escorted to the sea and probably by boat travels 300 miles straight south to the city of Athens. He sends word with his escorts that when you get back, tell Silas and Timothy to come down to Athens and to meet him there. Of course, one of the things we want to note is Berea, because this is where we get our name. When you say Lincoln Berean Church, many of us have had this discussion. What church do you go to? We go to Berean. It's like, what is that? You know, it's like a weird word that nobody's heard of. You've heard of Baptist, you've heard of Methodist, you've heard of Lutheran, but what is a Berean Sounds like some weird cult. (laughs) It actually comes from this passage. And the idea is that as Bereans, we want to be students of the scripture. We want to examine the word of God and understand what God says and believe it to be so. So this is where we get our name. Verse 16 Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So this is 300 miles to the south. This is about A.D. 50. So at this time in history, Athens is but a shadow of their former glory. Go back 450, 500 years, and Athens was the intellectual, philosophical center of the world. At that time, it boasted a population of roughly 200,000, which again was a very large city in its day. They boasted such names as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. But by this time, they had been conquered by Rome, and there were roughly about 10,000 people left in the city. But it was still a relatively significant place intellectually and philosophically. It was a place littered with temples, with statues, with idols. It's estimated that at A.D. 50, there were still roughly 30,000 statues to the gods in Athens. One ancient historian said it's easier to find a statue than a person in Athens. 
So this is what Paul is seeing. Probably he's just intending to lay low and wait for uh, Silas and Timothy. But his soul is so upset, it's so agitated, so distressed, that words that, that is used sometimes uh, is used to, to uh, reference a seizure. It's like he's about to have a seizure. He's so upset that these people seem to be sincerely seeking after God, but they're so consumed with these lies, he can't do nothing. So he's compelled to say something. The phrase full of idols, literally the Greek is drowning in idols. Verse 17, as was his pattern, he goes to the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. But he also goes to the marketplace called the Agora. When we hear marketplace, we think something different. But pretty much all of these Roman Greek cities were intentionally built with a hub, a center, which was the center of commerce. It was the center of of food distribution. It was the center of discussions and philosophy. It was called the Agora. So it's a strategic place to go. But the text says, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. Now think about how different that is. When people are going to the synagogue, they're seeking God. They're expecting the Old Testament to be read. They're expecting conversation. It's a bit like when people walk through the doors here. They're expecting a sermon. They're expecting the Bible to be taught. But that's not the same frame of mind that your neighbors are in, that the people you work with are in, the people you go to school with are in. They're maybe not so interested in hearing what God has to say or what you have to say about what God has to say. They're in a completely different frame of mind. So the approach has to be different. We're told in verse 18 that two schools of philosophical thought were represented there, at least two, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Now, in really simple terms, the Epicureans were what we would refer to as deists. They believed there were gods, but the gods were far away. They were uninvolved. They were disconnected. They had no real impact on daily living. They believed the purpose in life was pleasure, but they were not hedonists. They believed that a hedonist lifestyle was a good way to destroy your life. Rather, they believed you had to find balance and moderation to live in such a way to experience pleasure. They believed that the soul was connected to the body in such a way that when you physically die, your soul dies, there's no life after death. The Stoics believed what we would refer to as pantheism. That God is in everything. There's some sort of a divine purpose in the universe and there mission was to try to somehow align with that. They were all about self-sufficiency, meaning they wanted to remain steadfast, whether it was tragedy or triumph, it was up to them to control their emotions and remain steady. They believed, similar to much of Greek thought, 
that when you die, your spirit is disconnected from the body and kind of disappears into the black hole of the universe. So these two specific groups are engaged in conversation. The Greek is more like arguing with Paul about what he's saying. So some were accusing him of being an idle babbler. The Greek is a seed picker. Basically, what that's a reference to is uh, in Athens, a seed picker was a picture of a bird who goes around and pecks at seeds and gathers them up. It kind of evolved to describe someone who went out and found scraps and collected them and pulled them together. It ultimately was used to describe someone in Athens who would take a thought from over here, a thought from over here, a thought from over here, pull it all together and try to portray themselves as being intellectuals, as being elite, as being really thoughtful. And those were called seed pickers because really they weren't, uh, they didn't hold a coherent philosophy. They're just kind of picking seeds from here and there. It's very similar to what happens today when people get on the internet and they find this, this language here, and this philosophy here, and this belief here, and they use the language and some of the thoughts and they want to portray themselves as being really kind of sophisticated and elite and have some sort of a coherent philosophy. But the reality is they're just seed pickers. So some of them are saying that's what Paul is. Others are saying, you know, I think he's a proclaimer of strange deities, which, by the way, was the charge some 450 years earlier, one of the charges against Socrates, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, and it's a feminine word. So a lot of scholars think what they were hearing was two new gods, the male god Jesus, the female god Anastasis. And so he's uh, proclaiming strange deities. So they pull him to the Areopagus on Mars Hill, which was basically a council whose job it was to listen to these philosophies and determine one of two things. Either this is an interesting, well-thought-out, coherent philosophy, therefore you have permission to proclaim it in Athens. Or this is nonsense and you're silenced and you can't share it again. So that's why they're brought before the Areopagus and that's why they give Paul an opportunity to present what he has to say. Verse 21 is an interesting verse. It's what we would call an editorial comment. Luke wants to throw in his two cents here and tell you that actually what happened in Athens is these people understood this type of pursuit as entertainment. They weren't really seeking after the truth so much as wanting to be entertained by the latest thought, the latest philosophy, the latest idea. Again, much like what we see in our culture today. Verse 22, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, 
Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from uh, from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So at this opportunity... Paul could have operated, as he had done at the synagogue, could have gone through the Old Testament, could have gone through the promises, identified Jesus as the fulfillment, but it would have been relatively meaningless to these people. They didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't revere the Old Testament. That wouldn't have made any sense to them. So he goes a completely different direction as he's seeking to contextualize this message to help them understand it. So Paul has done his due diligence. He's wandered through the city. He has a sense of who these people are. So he identifies, it's fairly obvious you're very religious people. Perhaps all the temples and the 30,000 statues were uh, a giveaway there. But basically he's saying, you're very religious. It's obvious you're seeking God. But I did happen to notice that you did have one one idol that was dedicated to the unknown God. We know from uh, archaeology this was indeed true, that they would have some sort of an idol to an unknown God. The rationale is this. In the Greek world... They believed that there were all these gods, and if you didn't keep the gods happy, it was likely that one of these gods would clobber you. So that was the mindset. But what if after all this, we still missed one? And that really ticks off the god, so he's going to clobber us. So the wild card was, let's just have one to the unknown god, just in case we missed one. So that's the thinking there. Strategically, from Paul's point of view, this is absolutely brilliant. Because no matter what Paul says about this God, they can't say that's not true. Because they've already publicly acknowledged it's an unknown God to them. How how could they argue back? They don't know anything. So Paul now, in a sense, has license to explain 
This is the unknown God. He starts with the idea that this unknown God is the creator of the universe. Even in the ancient world, they understood the universe can't self-create. There has to be some sort of a force or a God that ultimately creates what is. So he identifies there is a creator God. And if that's true, then he would be Lord of heaven and earth. And if he's Lord of heaven and earth, he's not really going to be real impressed by these little temples you have, is he? And he's also not going to be real impressed by what you bring him. Since he is the author and sustainer of life, since he has created all things, he really doesn't need anything. So what you bring to him really isn't impressing him. Now, with those statements, he basically undercut everything that the Greek pagan religions were about. God's not impressed with your temple. He's not impressed with what you're doing. He goes on and says uh, that he has made everyone from one human ancestor. The Greeks believed that they, as Greeks, were superior to everyone else, much like how the Jews viewed themselves. What Paul was saying is, no, actually, every person, every nation, every people group roots back to a common ancestor all the way back to the beginning. One of the things I think that's just really frustrating to me in this culture is we seem so determined to figure out a way to resolve all this racial tension in our world. Yet we refuse to acknowledge at, as long as we keep promoting the idea that we have evolved by chance through survival of the fittest, that theory requires there to be people at the top end and the bottom end of the gene pool. Until we embrace as a worldview that there is a creator God who has made everybody on purpose for a purpose and we all root back to a common ancestor, there's no basis by which we can say all equal in every way. And that's what Paul is saying. Nobody's more than, nobody's less than. He also identifies that God is the author of nations, probably referring back to Genesis 10 and 11. And the purpose for that was so that people would realize we're not God and would seek after God, which is what he says. The evidence all around them is that they're seeking but they're groping in the darkness. That word grope was used to describe a blind man feeling his way along. You're trying to somehow grope in the darkness, figure this out, hoping you're going to stumble upon a God that, that is somehow favorable to you. In verse 28, then he quotes two of their poets. For in him we live and move and exist... And even some of your poets have said, for we also are his children. 
Paul was very well educated, very intellectual, was aware of their poetry, and identifies on these two accounts your poets had it right. That God is involved in our lives. Contrary to what the Epicureans were saying, God is not out there somewhere disconnected from all this. He's actually the author, sustainer of life. He's involved with us. He wants to be known. But he also identifies one of their poems that says we are his children. If we're offspring of God, then wouldn't God be more like us rather than something made of human hands of gold, silver, or stone, which then moves him to the point of the whole presentation. Therefore, verse 30, God is willing to overlook that you've done all this in your ignorance. You can almost imagine Paul kind of, kind of identifying, look at all this. And it was all done in ignorance, seeking after God. But if you're willing to repent, the word means change your mind and realize there is one true God and that God is going to ultimately judge and that judgment is going to come not through an idol of gold or silver or stone, but through a man. And that man is identified as Christ, who is the one who is crucified, buried, and rose again. He even says, in order to validate the claim, so you would know this is true, he rose from the dead. This is roughly thirty or uh, 20 years after the resurrection. So not that much time has passed. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, that means mock, make fun of. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. They're intrigued, they want to know more. Verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Demaris, and others with them. This is actually quite remarkable when you understood that the entertainment for these people in Athens was to hear presentation after presentation after presentation, one philosophy after another, not really to find the truth so much as to be entertained by the latest and newest idea. And yet there were those that heard what Paul said, who were so convinced, including a member of the council, that they determined not only is this okay to proclaim, I believe this is the truth, and they became a follower of Jesus. Again, Paul could have stood at the Areopagus and went through his Old Testament spiel and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that, something that was very effective at the synagogue, but would have made no sense to these people. Again, I think with our rapidly changing American culture, we really need to think about this. 
Again, I think the days of the one size fits all, one, two, three, here's how to get to heaven days are over. Our culture has so changed. We're going to talk to highly religious people. Many of those are very difficult to reach because they believe they're good enough. They believe their religion will get them to heaven. It's a very difficult conversation. Others you talk to are going to be deeply wounded by religion. I talk to these people all the time. That's a very different conversation. But there's more and more who are biblically illiterate and very secular in their orientation. They don't care what the Bible says. They don't think the Bible is the word of God. They don't think there is such thing as truth. And it's a completely different conversation with them. And we have to rethink how we're going to present this in a way that it will be heard. Years ago, when I went to India, on one of my trips, I was with a group of the pastors that we were training. And during some downtime, I was just asking them their story. How did they come to Christ? Some of them were raised in Christian homes. But those who, as adults, came to Christ, almost all told the same story. In a Hindu culture, when you talk about Jesus, it's not that difficult for a Hindu just to add Jesus to the list. It's a long list of gods, let's add him to the list. But that's not what we're saying. He's not one among many on the list. So to get them to understand, no, we're saying this is the one true God. Almost everyone I talked to said the same thing. What really turned their heart to Jesus was in a culture of such hopelessness and despair, they saw people that were happy. They saw people that were joyful. They saw people that had something they didn't have. And that was very appealing, which opened their heart to listen and hear and understand the gospel. I think in a culture that's become so cynical, we've abandoned truth. We're so weary of the lies. You can't just say, this is truth because the Bible says so. It's just not where people are. And so, much like what happened in India, I think what's going to create a context for the gospel is the evidence of our lives. Something that communicates to them there's something different about this person. As long as we're just as angry as everybody else, as long as we're just determined to divide up everybody on sides as everyone else, as long as we behave like everyone else, there's no witness, there's no light. I do believe the last several years have gotten people's attention. People are concerned. People realize this is all falling apart. People realize there's something really wrong here. People are anxious, people are fearful, people are concerned, people are looking somewhere to turn. 
But I can assure you they're not looking for someone that looks like everybody else. The word holy means other than. They're looking for people that seem other than. What's happening in our culture. They're looking for people that seem to be at peace. People that seem to give off this sense that no matter what happens, they have this sense everything's going to be okay. People that are characterized by their kindness. People who are characterized by their compassion. People who are characterized by their willingness to roll up their sleeves and to get involved. Most of us can't argue at the level of Paul. But nor do you need to. Think about your skills, think about your talents, think about your opportunities. To open our eyes and realize there's people all around us, they're very scared. They're very angry, they're very concerned, they're very cynical. Sometimes just a little kindness, a little compassion. I'm convinced in this culture, one of the greatest things we can do is listen. Because nobody listens. We're so selfish. We're so self-centered. We're so individualistic. We're so into ourselves. Nobody listens. People will pay thousands of dollars to go to someone just to listen to them for an hour. Because nobody else will listen. I'm convinced what represents, what pictures, our mascot as an American culture today, is the selfie. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to take a selfie. We all do it. Don't go there. You don't have to send me emails. <laughs> but come on, you have to admit it. That, admit it. That epitomizes who we are as a culture. We're constantly taking pictures of ourselves. I'm convinced a lot of people do a little bit of good because they want to feel better about themselves. They want to take a picture of themselves. They want to post it on Instagram and Facebook and project an image. I'm a good person. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a lifestyle of compassion, of kindness, of caring, of rolling up our sleeves, of getting involved, just quietly looking for where can I make a difference. I think if we listen to people, I think if we ask questions, we try to understand their concerns and their hopes and their dreams, it's amazing how quickly those conversations turn to something meaningful. Because if we're willing to slow down and to care and listen, we're so other than the rest of the culture that people feel valued. People feel like somebody genuinely cares. That's the heartbeat of this whole idea behind Love Your Neighbor Month. It's not intended to be one month out of the year where you do this. It is intended to get us thinking about opportunities, about needs, about people around us, about creative ways that we can make a difference in order to provide a context for people to be open to listen to the message of the gospel. So I would strongly encourage all of us to take seriously the challenge 
to figure out creative ways to love your neighbor, whether it's your literal neighbor, somebody you go to school with, somebody you work with. How can we creatively make a difference in this lost and needy world? Father, we're thankful this morning that you sent Jesus to die on a cross to be the Savior of the world. Lord, we know ultimately Jesus wins. And the desire of our heart is for others to know this too. Lord, give us new, fresh, creative eyes to see the people and the needs around us that we might effectively fulfill the mission that you have given to us as your church in Jesus' name, amen.